Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, Stephen Pinker tells us how to communicate effectively, using reason and evidence to demonstrate how strict rules of grammar sometimes ought to be broken. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a treat to be at the Royal Institution, to be introduced by uh, my Melvin Bragg, and to address all of you here tonight. <clears throat> Why is so much writing so bad? Why do we have to struggle with so much legalese, as in the revocation by these regulations of a provision previously revoked subject to savings does not affect the continued operations? Why do we put up with academies? As in, it is the moment of non-construction, disclosing the absentation of actuality from the concept in part through its invitation to emphasize in reading the helplessness of its fall into conceptuality. (laughs) Why is it so hard to set the time on a digital alarm clock? There's no shortage of theories, and the one that I hear most often is captured in this cartoon in which a boss says to a tech writer, good start, needs more gibberish. That is, that bad writing is a deliberate choice. Bureaucrats insist on gibberish to evade responsibility. Hasty-faced nerds get their revenge on the girls who turned them down for dates in high school and the jocks who kicked sand in their faces. Pseudo-intellectuals try to bamboozle their audiences with highfalutin gobbledygook, disguising the fact that they have nothing to say. Well, I have no doubt that the bamboozlement theory is true of some writers some of the time, but as a general explanation, it doesn't ring true. I know many scientists who do groundbreaking work on uh, important topics. They have nothing to hide and no need to impress, but still, their writing stinks. Good people can write bad prose. The second most popular theory is that digital media are ruining the language. Google is making us stupid. The digital age stupefies young Americans and jeopardizes our future. Twitter is forcing us to uh, think in 140 characters. Uh, Well, if the dumbest generation theory were true, then that implies that it must have been much better before the advent of digital media, uh, such as in the 1980s. Uh, Many of you will remember that that was an era in which teenagers spoke in articulate paragraphs. (laughs) Remember when bureaucrats wrote in plain English and every academic article was a masterpiece in the art of the essay? Or was it the 70s? Uh, The thing is that complaints about the imminent decline of the language can be found in every era, such as 1961, in which a commentator complained, recent graduates, including those with university degrees, seem to have no mastery of the language at all. Well, we can then go back before the advent of radio and television. In 1917, a commentator wrote, from every college in the country goes up the cry, our freshmen can't spell, can't punctuate, every high school is in disrepair because its pupils are so ignorant of the merest rudiments. Well, maybe you have to go back even earlier to, say, the glory days of the European Enlightenment, such as 1785, in which a commentator said, our language is degenerating very fast. (laughs) I begin to fear that it will be impossible to check it. And then there are the ancient grammar police (laughs) said, oh, for crying out loud, you never end a sentence with a little bird. (laughs) 
Uh, I think a better theory comes from uh, Charles Darwin, who wrote, man has an instinctive tendency to speak, as we see in the babble of our young children, whereas no child has an instinctive tendency to bake, brew, or write. That is, whereas speech is instinctive, writing is and always has been hard. Your readers are unknown, invisible, inscrutable. They exist only in your imagination when you put pen to paper. They can't react or break in or ask for clarification. As a result, writing is an act of pretense and writing is an act of craftsmanship. Well, what can we do then to improve the craft of writing? For many decades, this question had, at least in the United States, a single answer, which is that you hand students this, the iconic elements of style by Cornell professor William Strunk, Jr. and his student uh, E.B. White, who later went on to glory as the uh, New Yorker essayist and the author of the children's classics, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. Note, by the way, that both these men were born before the turn of the century, that is, before the turn of the 20th century. Now, there is undoubtedly a lot of good sense in the elements of style. There are little gems of advice like use definite, specific, concrete language, write with nouns and verbs, put the emphatic words at the end, and my favorite, their prime directive, omit needless words, which is, by the way, an excellent example of itself. <laughs> On the other hand, there are many reasons why the elements of style and other traditional style manuals, like uh, Fowler's Modern English Usage, probably the closest English equivalent, uh, why they cannot be the basis of writing advice in the 21st century. For one thing, a lot of the advice is obsolete. Language changes. For example, Strunk and White declared that to finalize is a pompous, ambiguous verb. Now, many of you will be surprised to find that this perfectly unexceptionable and useful uh, word would be uh, deemed pompous and ambiguous at the time, uh, but it just happened to be new in Professor Strunk's era. It grated on his ears. He declared it uh, uh, pompous, but it then fell into, the, into uh, common usage, and no one even remembers that it was ever uh, considered ungrammatical. Or, uh, to contact is vague and self-important. Do not contact people. Get in touch with them, look them up, phone them, find them, or meet them. Of course, Strunk and White did not live to see the day in which you could also text them and instant message them and tweet them and email them and so on. Uh, nor did they really appreciate that uh, to contact actually is an indispensable verb because there's sometimes when you don't care whether one person uh, phones or meets or uh, uh, texts another, uh, as long as they do get in touch with them by one means or another. And for that purpose, to contact is a perfectly useful verb. Some of the advice is baffling, <clears throat> such as this. The word people is not to be used with words of number in place of persons. That is, you should not say six people. Why not? Well, if six, of six people, five went away, how many people would be left? Answer, one people. <laughs> Did you get that? By the same logic, you should never... Uh, say I have two children, or 32 teeth, or two feet, or any other irregular plural. Or um, how's this? Note that the word clever means one thing when applied to people, another when applied to horses. <laughs> a clever horse is a good-natured one, not an ingenious one. <clears throat> 
the problem with traditional style advice is that it consists of an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts based on the tastes and peeves of the authors. It's not based on a principled understanding of how language works, and as a result, users have no way of understanding and assimilating the advice, and as I've noted, much of the advice is just wrong. I think we can do better today. We can base advice on writing on the science and scholarship of language on modern grammatical theory, which is an advance over the old grammars uh, that are, were ported over from Latin, on evidence-based dictionaries, <clears throat> on research in cognitive science on what makes sentences easy or hard to read, and on historical and critical studies of usage. Uh, it all begins with a model of effective prose communication. As I have been emphasizing, writing is an unnatural act. And good style must begin with a coherent mental model of the communication scenario, how the writer imagines the reader and what the writer is trying to accomplish. And my favorite model of this sort comes from a lovely book by the English scholars Francis Noel Thomas and Mark Turner, and they call it classic style. The model behind classic style is that prose is a window onto the world. The writer has seen something in the world that the reader has not yet noticed, he positions the reader so that she can see it with her own eyes. The writer and reader are equals. The goal is to help the reader see objective reality and the stylist conversation. Now that may seem obvious, but classic style is just one of a variety of styles that they uh, explicate, uh, including contemplative style, oracular style, uh, and practical style. But the one that they argue that uh, infects most academic prose is one they call postmodern or self-conscious style, in which <clears throat> the writer's chief, if unstated, concern is to escape being convicted of philosophical naivete about his own enterprise. They continue, when we open a cookbook, we completely put aside and expect the author to put aside the kind of question that leads to the heart of certain philosophical traditions. Is it possible to talk about cooking? <laughs> Do eggs really exist? Is food something about which knowledge is possible? Can anyone ever tell us anything true about cooking? Classic style similarly puts aside as inappropriate philosophical questions about its enterprise. If it took those questions up, it could never get around to treating its subject, and its purpose is exclusively to treat its subject. Well, I'd be defying the principles of classic prose if I just talked about it without showing you an example. And here's an example. It is an article by the physicist Brian Greene on the theory of inflationary cosmology and it, it, one of its implications, multiple universes. And he wrote it for Newsweek magazine. Uh, Green writes, if space is now expanding, then at ever earlier times, the universe must have been ever smaller. At some moment in the distant past, everything we now see, the ingredients responsible for every planet, every star, every galaxy, even space itself, must have been compressed to an infinitesimal speck that then swelled outward, evolving into the universe as we know it. The Big Bang Theory was born. Yet scientists were aware that the Big Bang Theory suffered from a significant shortcoming. Of all things, it leaves out the bang. Einstein's equations do a wonderful job of describing how the universe evolved from a split second after the bang, but the equations break down, similar to the error message returned by a calculator when you try to divide one by zero, when applied to the extreme environment of the universe's earliest moment. The Big Bang thus provides no insight into what might have powered the bang itself. Now, in this 
in these few sentences, Green has covered some fairly sophisticated cosmology and physics, but he does it in a way that uh, anyone can see for themselves. That is, if you can imagine the universe expanding, you can run that mental movie backwards and imagine that it must have originated in an uh, infinitesimal spec. And even the abstruse mathematical notion of equations breaking down, he presents in a way that anyone can see for themselves. You can either pull out a calculator and try it, try dividing one by zero, and indeed you will get an error message, or you can try to wrap your mind around what it could possibly mean to divide the number one into zero parts. Uh, and uh, that is classic style. The reader can see it for herself. Now, many examples of writing advice, I think, are implications of the model behind classic prose. To, to begin with, the focus of classic prose is on the thing being shown, not on the activity of studying it. So here's an example of the kind of prose that I have to uh, wade through during my uh, working day. Uh, a, a typical article in my field might begin as follows. In recent years, an increasing number of researchers have turned their attention to the problem of child language acquisition. In this article, recent theories of this process will be reviewed. Well, no offense, but not a whole lot of people are all that interested in how professors spend their time. <clears throat> a more classic introduction to the same subject matter could have been, all children acquire the ability to speak and understand a language without explicit lessons. How do they accomplish this feat? A corollary of this uh, advisory is to minimize the kind of apologizing that academics in particular feel compelled to do. Uh, again, this is the kind of sentence that I have to deal with in my uh, uh, daily life. The problem of language acquisition is extremely complex. It is difficult to give precise definitions of the concept of language and the concept of acquisition and the concept of children. <laughs> <coughs> There is much uncertainty about the interpretation of experimental data and a great deal of controversy surrounding the theories. More research needs to be done. <laughs> now, this is the kind of verbiage that could be deleted at a stroke with no loss in content. Because classic prose gives the reader credit for knowing that many concepts are hard to define and many controversies hard to resolve, the reader is there to see what the writer will do about it. Another corollary is to minimize the uh, hedging that uh, is uh, apparently obligatory in academic prose. The uh, sprinkling of words into uh, prose such as somewhat, fairly, rather, nearly, relatively, seemingly, in part, comparatively, predominantly, apparently, so to speak, and presumably. Uh, and uh, the similar use of shutter quotes by which a writer distances himself from a familiar figure of speech. So here's an example from a letter of recommendation I received. She is a quick study and has been able to educate herself in virtually any area that interests her. And if she's been able to educate herself in virtually any area that interests her, are there some areas that interest her where she tried to educate herself but just failed? Uh, this habit was brought home to me when I uh, came uh, across a, a, uh, an acquaintance at an academic conference. We hadn't seen each other in a number of years, and I asked how she was. And uh, she pulled out a picture of her four-year-old daughter, and she said, we virtually adore her. Ah. <laughs> uh, Why the compulsive hedging? Well, there is a, an imperative in many bureaucracies that uh, the bureaucrats abbreviate as CYA, uh, cover your uh, anatomy. <laughs> but there is an, an alternative in classic style, so sue me. 
That is, it's better to be clear and possibly wrong than muddy and, as the physicists say, not even wrong. Also, classic prose counts on the cooperative nature of ordinary conversation. The fact that two people in uh, uh, chit-chat will read between the lines and connect the dots so that not everything has to be stated uh, with uh, absolute precision. So if I were to say, well, in recent years, Americans have been getting fatter, you interpret it as meaning you know, on average or in general. You're not going to hold me to the claim that every last one of the 315 million citizens of the United States have all been getting fatter. Um, I call this, uh, these tendencies professional narcissism. The, uh, confusing, the confusion of the activities of your uh, guild or field or profession with the subject matter that it is designed to, uh, uh, to deal with. And it is not just a problem in academics, but it infects many professions. News media, for example, will often cover the coverage, giving rise to the notorious media echo chamber. Uh, much coverage of movies and popular music will tell you all about the first weekend gross receipts and the number of weeks on the charts, but say nothing about the actual work of art. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has been bored to tears by the uh, museum display where you get the shard and the showcase and a lengthy explanation of how it fits into a classification of pottery styles, but it says nothing about the people who made it or, or what they did with it. Uh, and many government and business websites will instruct you into the bureaucratic organization, but show, have no ready way to find the information that you actually need. A second feature of classic prose is that it keeps up the illusion that the reader is seeing a world rather than just listening to verbiage. And as such, it avoids cliches like the plague. Uh, we are all familiar with the uh, kind of writer who dispenses sentences such as, we needed to think outside the box in our search for the Holy Grail, but found that it was neither a magic bullet nor a slam dunk. So we rolled with the punches and let the chips fall where they may while seeing the glass is half full. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> now, the problem in, uh, with writing in cliches is that it either forces the reader to kind of shut down her visual brain and just process the words as blah, 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 or if she actually does think through the prose to the underlying image, she'll inevitably be upended by the inevitable uh, mixed metaphors. Uh, here's another sentence from a letter of recommendation I received. Jeff is a renaissance man drilling down to the core issues and pushing the envelope. <laughs> it's not clear how you can do all of those at the same time. Or this is from an article in the New York Times. Uh, no one has yet invented a condom that will knock people's socks off. <laughs> and if you uh, write this way, you will be eligible for membership in awful that is, Americans who figuratively use literally. <laughs> and I'm told there's a British chapter. Now, it is perfectly acceptable to say she literally blushed. It's much more problematic to say she literally exploded. <laughs> and it's very, very bad to say she literally emasculated him. Now, uh, third, classic prose is about the world. It's not about the conceptual tools with which we understand the world, and as such, it avoids the excessive use of meta-concepts, that is, concepts about other concepts, such as approach, assumption, concept, condition, context, framework, issue level, model, paradigm, perspective, process, role, strategy, tendency, variable. Uh, admit it, you use these words a lot when you write. Um, as in, 
This is a sentence taken from a, uh, an editorial on, uh, by a legal scholar. I have serious doubts that trying to amend the Constitution would work on an actual level. On the aspirational level, however, a constitutional amendment strategy may be more valuable. Which is to say, I doubt that trying to amend the Constitution would actually succeed, but it may be valuable to aspire to it. Or this from an email I received, it is important to approach this subject from a variety of strategies, including mental health assistance, but also from a law enforcement perspective. Translation, we should consult a psychiatrist about this man, <laughs> but we may also have to inform the police. <laughs> Classic prose narrates ongoing events. We see agents who perform actions that affect objects. Non-classic prose <coughs> thingifies the events and then refers to them with a single word using a dangerous tool of English grammar called nominalization, turning a verb or an adjective into a noun. So instead of appearing, you make an appearance. Instead of organizing something, you bring about the organization of that thing. Helen Sword, a, a uh, language scholar, calls them zombie nouns because they kind of lumber across the page with no conscious agent actually directing their, uh, the action. And uh, they can turn prose into a night of the living dead. Uh, participants read assertions whose veracity was either affirmed or denied by the subsequent presentation of an assessment word, uh, which is another way of saying people saw sentences each followed by the word true or false. Subjects were tested under conditions of good to excellent acoustic isolation. Uh, to wit, we tested the students in a quiet room. <laughs> but it's not, again, it is not just academics who have this bad habit. It is also politicians. Uh, when the, a hurricane threatened the Republican Party National Convention a few years ago, Texas, um, Florida Governor Rick Scott said, right now there is not any anticipation. There will be a cancellation. That is, right now we don't anticipate that we will have to cancel it. And just to be nonpartisan, on the other side of the American political spectrum, here we have Secretary of State John Kerry saying, the president is desirous of trying to see how we can make our best efforts in order to find a way to facilitate. In other words, the president wants to help. <clears throat> and, it's, and corporate consultants. A young man interviewed by a journalist explained that uh, he is a uh, digital and social media strategist. I deliver programs, products, and strategies to our corporate clients across the spectrum of communications functions. And when the journalist confessed that he had no idea what that meant and asked him what he really did, he finally broke down and he said, I teach big companies how to use Facebook. <laughs> and product engineers. Uh, portable generators and combustion heaters used to carry uh, a warning more or less like uh, this. Mild exposure to CO can result in accumulated damage over time. Extreme exposure to CO may rapidly be fatal without producing significant warning symptoms. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, and as a result, several hundred Americans every year uh, turned their houses into gas chambers and asphyxiated themselves and their families by running uh, heaters and generators indoors. <clears throat> Until they replaced the warning with this one, using a generator indoors can kill you in minutes. <laughs> <clears throat> so classic prose can literally be a matter of life and death. Yes, literally. <laughs> so part two, how can an understanding of the design of leading lead to better writing advice? Another contributor to zombie prose is the passive voice. This refers to the contrast between a sentence in the active voice, such as the dog bit the man, and a sentence like the man was bitten by the dog in the passive voice. 
It's well known that the passive voice is overused by academics, as in, on the basis of the analysis which was made of the data which were collected, it is suggested that the null hypothesis can be rejected. Four passives in one sentence. Uh, and lawyers, if the outstanding balance is prepaid in full, the unearned finance charge will be refunded. Three passives. But uh, perhaps most infamously of all, politicians. Here we have a, uh, one of our candidates for president in the United States, New Jersey Governor uh, Chris Christie, who uh, in explaining how it was that uh, his administration caused a three-hour traffic jam by deliberately closing uh, the lanes to a tunnel during rush hour in order to punish the mayor of a town that uh, would not endorse his re-election, he said, mistakes were made. <laughs> the uh, infamous politician's evasive passive. Not surprisingly, all of the traditional manuals warn against using the passive voice. Strunk and White say, uh, use the active voice. The active voice is usually more direct and vigorous than the passive. Many a tame sentence can be made lively and emphatic by substituting a transitive in the active voice for some such perfunctory expression as there is or could be heard. Well, I'm glad to hear from the laughter that uh, a number of people have noted that, uh, yes, Strunk and White use the passive in order to tell people not to use the passive. The uh, other um, iconic bit of writing advice is the classic essay, Politics in the English Language, by George Orwell, probably the second most uh, widely distributed bit of advice on writing. And Orwell, too, says, um, a mixture of vagueness and sheer incompetence is the most marked characteristic of modern English prose. He wrote in 1949, showing that some things don't change. I list below various of the tricks by means of which the work of prose construction is habitually dodged. The passive voice is wherever possible used in preference to the active, a passage that has not one, but two uses of the passive voice to tell people not to use the passive voice. Well. The passive construction could not have survived in the English language for 1,500 years if it did not serve some purpose. Why can't we do without it, even when telling people to, uh, not to overuse it? It comes down to the design of language. You can think of language as an app for converting a web of thoughts into a string of words. Now, the writer's knowledge uh, can be thought of as a, a kind of mind-wide web, what cognitive psychologists call a semantic network. Uh, that is a collection of uh, nodes for concepts. Here we have a uh, fragment of uh, a person's knowledge of the tragic events brought to life by Sophocles in his play Oedipus Rex. So you've got a number of uh, nodes for uh, concepts like father, kill, uh, marry, you've got a bunch of links that indicate how the concepts are related, doer, done to, uh, about, uh, is, and so on. Now, when you just lie back and um, uh, ponder uh, your, your, your uh, knowledge base, your mind can surf from one concept to another in pretty much any order. But what happens when you have to translate your web of ideas into a sentence? Well, now you've got to convert that tangled web into a linear string of words. In Sophocles' play, Oedipus married his mother and killed his father. That means that there's an inherent problem baked into the design of language. The order of words in a sentence has to do two things at once. It's the code that English syntax uses to express who did what to whom, 
At the same time, it necessarily presents some bits of information to the reader before others, and thereby affects how the information is going to be absorbed. In particular, the early material in the sentence uh, refers to the sentence's topic, that it, and naturally connects back to what's already reverberating in the reader's mind. In the metaphor of classic prose, it refers to the general direction in which the reader is looking. The later words in the sentence contain the sentence's focal point, what, it, it, what fact it is now conveying. Uh, in the metaphor, it's what the reader is supposed to now notice. Any prose that violates these principles, even if each sentence is clear, uh, will feel choppy or disjointed or incoherent. Uh, and that brings us to the passive. The passive is a workaround in English uh, for this inherent design limitation of the language. It allows writers to convey the same ideas, namely who did what to whom, uh, while varying the order of words. In particular, it allows a writer to start the sentence with the done to or the acted upon rather than the doer or the actor. And that's why uh, avoid the passive as a general law is bad advice. The passive is in fact the better construction when the done to or the acted upon is currently the target of the reader's mental gaze. And again, I'll give you an example. This comes from the Wikipedia entry for uh, Oedipus Rex, and it describes the uh, pivotal moment in the play in which the horrific backstory is revealed to the audience. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> a messenger arrives from Corinth. It emerges that he was formerly a shepherd on Mount Kithron, and during that time he was given a baby. The baby, he said, was given to him by another shepherd from the Laius household who had been told to get rid of the child. Now, notice that this passage has three passive sentences in a row, and for good reason. As the passage opens, our eyes are on the uh, messenger. A messenger arrives from Corinth. And so the next sentence, telling us something about the messenger, should begin with a referent to the uh, messenger. And thanks to the passive voice, so it does. He, the messenger, was given a baby. Well, now we're kind of figuratively looking at the baby, at least our mind's eye is, and the next sentence should then begin with the baby. And again, thanks to the passive voice, it does. The baby was given to the messenger by another shepherd. Well, now we're looking at this new shepherd, and the next sentence telling us something about him should begin with, with that. And again, the passive makes that possible. The other shepherd had been told to get rid of the child. Now, imagine that the uh, writer of this passage had either followed the advice in the traditional manuals literally or was the victim of the kind of copy editor that turns every act, a passive sentence back into an active. Then you would have, a messenger arrives from Corinth. It emerges that he was formerly a shepherd on Mount Kitheron, and during that time, someone gave him a baby. Another shepherd from the Laius household, he says, whom someone had told to get rid of a child, gave the baby to him. Now, I think you will agree that this is not an improvement. Your attention is kind of jerked around from one part of the uh, story to another, and participants kind of parachute in without warning or a proper uh, introduction. More generally, English syntax provides writers with constructions that vary the order in the string while preserving the meaning. Oedipus killed Laius, Laius was killed by Oedipus, it was Laius whom Oedipus killed, it was Oedipus who killed Laius, uh, and so on. And writers must choose the construction that introduces ideas to the reader in the order in which she can absorb them. Well, why then is the passive so common in bad writing, as it surely is? It's because good writers narrate a story advanced by protagonists who make things happen. Bad writers work backwards from their own knowledge 
writing down ideas in the order in which they occur to them. They begin with the outcome of the event because they know how it happened, and then they throw in the cause as an afterthought, and the passive makes that all too easy. So why should this be so hard? Why is it so hard for writers to deploy the resources made available by the English language to convey ideas effectively? The best explanation that I know of uh, is uh, it's called the curse of knowledge. The fact that when you know something, it's hard to imagine what it's like for someone else not to know it. Psychologists give it various names. It's also called mind blindness, egocentrism, hindsight bias, uh, about half a dozen others. Perhaps the best introduction comes from a uh, classic experiment that will be familiar to any of you who've taken a course in child psychology, the uh, M&M study, or in, in uh, Britain you could call it the Smarties study. A uh, three-year-old boy comes into a uh, lab, sits down at a table. The experimenter gives him a box of Smarties. He's all excited. He opens it, and he finds that instead of containing Smarties, it can, the box contains pencils. So the child is surprised, and the experimenter puts the pencils back in the box, closes it, puts it back down on the table, and he says, okay, well, now another little boy is going to come in, Jason. What does Jason think is in the box? And the boy will say, pencils even though, of course, Jason has no way of knowing that a box contains pencils. The boy knows it, but uh, a, uh, a newcomer would not. And in fact, if you ask him, well, what, when you came into the room, what did you think was in the box? And he'll say, pencils. Now that he knows it, he can no longer recover the innocent state in which he once did not know it. Now, adults, of course, uh, outgrow this uh, limitation. Kind of. <laughs> a little. Because many studies have shown a similar effect in uh, adults, people will tend to attribute their own uh, obscure vocabulary to the population at large. If they know a fact, they assume everyone else does. Uh, and in one study, the more practice someone had at using a complicated gadget like a smartphone, the less time they estimated it would take someone else to learn it. Because the more familiar they were, uh, the obviously easier it must be, because it was easy for them. I think that the curse of knowledge is the chief contributor to opaque writing. Uh, it simply doesn't occur to the writer that readers haven't learned their jargon, don't know the intermediate steps that seem too obvious to mention, can't visualize a scene that's currently in the writer's mind's eye, and so the writer doesn't bother to explain the jargon or spell out the logic or supply the concrete details, even when writing for professional peers. Um, I, uh, it's a lazy excuse that writers often have that they don't have to spell things out, because after all, they're just writing for their professional peers. But because of the curse of knowledge, even prose written for professional peer, peers is often surprisingly opaque. I'll give you an example. This is a passage from an article on consciousness written in a journal called Trends in Cognitive Science, which is designed to present short, readable summaries of research for the benefit of um, cognitive scientists keeping up with one another's work. So here's the, here's the passage. The slow and integrative nature of conscious perception is confirmed behaviorally by observations such as the rabbit illusion and its variants, where the way in which a stimulus is ultimately perceived is influenced by post-stimulus events arising several hundreds of milliseconds after the original stimulus. Now, I've been in this business for almost 40 years, and I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I uh, 
have never heard of the rabbit illusion, though I, I, I know an awful lot of illusions. And I know what the word stimulus means, but I have no idea what they're talking about when they talk about how a stimulus is ultimately perceived. So I went to my bookshelves, and I found one that had an entry for something called the cutaneous rabbit illusion, which works as follows. The subject closes his eyes, sticks out his arm, the experimenter taps him three times on the wrist, three times on the elbow, three times on the shoulder, and the person experiences it as a series of taps running up the length of his arm, kind of like a hopping rabbit, hence the rabbit illusion. Well, why didn't they just say that? Uh, not only is it no less scientific to spell out the, uh, the concrete scenario, but it's actually more scientific, because knowing that that's what the rabbit illusion is, I can then follow the logic of what they are claiming, namely what it shows is that consciousness does, what allegedly shows is that consciousness does not track sensory events in real time, but our brain is constantly editing our experience after the fact to make it feel more uh, coherent. Well, knowing what the illusion actually consists of, I can then ponder whether that really follows, whether that's a, a correct interpretation of the illusion, or whether it might have some uh, alternative explanation, something that I can't do with stimulus this and post-stimulus that. The um, temptations of uh, thoughtless abbreviation uh, are, I think, best captured by an old joke. So a man... Um, walks into a uh, Catskills resort in upstate New York and uh, walks into the dining room and he sees a bunch of retired Borscht Belt comedians uh, sitting around a table. And so he, he, there's an empty chair and he joins them. And here's one of the uh, comedians saying, 47, and the others break out into uproarious laughter. Another one says, 112, and then they all, again, they all just burst out into peals of laughter rolling on the floor and he can't figure out what's going on. So he asks the guy next to him, he says, what's happening? And the guy says, well, you know, these old timers, they've been together for so long that they all know the same jokes. So to save time, they've given each joke a number, and now they just have to say the number. The guy says, that's ingenious, I'll try it. So he says, 31, stony silence. He says, 77, everyone stares at him, no one laughs. So he sinks back down into his seat, and he says to, to his friend, uh, what happened, why didn't anyone laugh? The guy says, well, it's all in the way you tell it. <laughs> so how do you exercise the curse of knowledge? Well, the traditional solution is always keep in mind the reader over your shoulder. That is, empathize with your reader, uh, see the world from uh, her point of view, try to uh, feel her pain, walk a mile in her moccasins, and so on. Well, this is good advice as far as it goes, but it only goes so far because a lot of research in psychology has shown that we're not very good at figuring out what people know, even when we try really, really hard. A, a better solution is to actually show a draft to a real, live, representative uh, reader, and you will often discover that what's obvious to you isn't obvious to anyone else. You can even show a draft to yourself after some time has passed and it's no longer familiar. And if you're like me, you'll find yourself uh, thinking, um, that wasn't clear, or what did I mean by that? Or all too often, who wrote this crap? <laughs> and then uh, rewrite, um, ideally several times, with the single goal of making the prose understandable to uh, the uh, reader. Finally, how should we think about correct usage of what is uh, right or wrong, 
correct or incorrect, which is the aspect of writing that by far attracts the most attention and arouses the most emotion. Now, some usages are clearly wrong. There is a famous and beloved American um, uh, children's character known as Cookie Monster, who's uh, famous on the, uh, the, the Muppets and Sesame Street, whose signature line is, me want cookie. Now, even three-year-olds appreciate and can laugh at Cookie Monster because even by their own lights, they know that Cookie Monster has made a grammatical error. Uh, many of you may be familiar with uh, the form of uh, humor or alleged humor called the lolcat, uh, as in I can has cheeseburger, the humor in which uh, uh, resides in the fact that uh, this cat is uh, incompetent at English grammar. Uh, if we didn't recognize that the cat was making a grammatical error, we would not find it funny, at least those people who do find it funny. Uh, even Ex-President George W. Bush uh, acknowledged that this was a grammatical error in a self-deprecating speech in which he pointed out uh, many of his own uh, past speech errors. Uh, but others are not so clear. Just again to be nonpartisan, the Democratic president, Bill Clinton, when he was running for office in 1992, had as uh, one of his campaign slogans, give Al Gore and I a chance to bring America back. Uh, appalling the nation's English teachers uh, who pointed out that this is an example of the notorious between you and I error, and it should be give Al Gore and me a chance to bring America back. Another Democratic president, Barack Obama, said no American should live under a cloud of suspicion just because of what they look like, the uh, infamous singular they error. Captain Kirk of Star Trek, <laughs> the five-year mission of the spaceship Enterprise, Starship Enterprise to boldly go where no man has gone before. Split infinitive. The Beatles. You think you lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. It's you she's thinking of, and she told me what to say. Anyone? Preposition at the end of a sentence. And then uh, I doubt many people will recognize this American icon. This is Dick Cavett, who uh, was the host of our uh, short-lived and uh, much-missed uh, urbane, witty, intelligent uh, talk show, uh, and in an um, uh, op-ed in which he was talking about a college reunion, he wrote, checking into the hotel, it was nice to see a few of my old classmates in the lobby. Anyone? Anyone go to school before the 1960s? Uh, yes, it's a dangling participle. Well, what do we do with these more contested um, uh, usage errors? They've given rise to what journalists sometimes call the language war. On the one side, there are the prescriptivists who prescribe how people ought to speak and write. They are also known as the purists, sticklers, pedants, peevers, snobs, snoots, nitpickers, traditionalists, language police, usage nannies, grammar Nazis, and the gotcha gang, according to whom rules of usage are objectively correct. To obey them is to uphold standards of excellence. To flout them is to dumb down literate culture, degrade the language, and hasten the decline of civilization. <laughs> now, according to the scenario, on the other hand side, we have the descriptivists who describe how people do speak and write, according to whom rules of usage are just the secret handshake of the ruling class, and the people should be liberated to write however they please. Now, I think there are reasons to believe that the language war, however beloved it is of uh, uh, certain magazines, is a pseudo-controversy. 
Uh, if it were really true, then the prescriptivists would have to insist that the lyrics to the famous Beatles song should be, it's you of whom she's thinking. <laughs> and the descriptivists would have to claim that there is nothing wrong with I can has cheeseburger, in which case they could not get the joke of the wall cat. I think we need a more sophisticated way of thinking about usage. So what are rules of usage? Where do they come from? They're certainly not logical truths truth that you could prove uh, in the uh, propositional calculus, uh, and nor are they officially regulated by dictionaries. And I can speak with some authority here because I am the chair of the usage panel, the American Heritage Dictionary. And when I joined the panel, I asked the uh, editor-in-chief, so how do you guys decide what to put in the dictionary? And his answer was, we pay attention to the way people use words. That is, when it comes to correctness, there's no one in charge. The lunatics are running the asylum. <laughs> so a way to make sense of uh, rules of usage is that they are tacit evolving conventions. A convention is a way of doing things that has uh, no particular advantages other than the fact that everyone else is doing it. Paper currency is an example. A piece of paper with a picture of the, uh, the queen uh, has no inherent value other than the fact that everyone expects everyone else to treat it as having value. There's no particular reason to drive on the right as opposed to driving on the left. There's nothing you know, sinister about driving in the left or gauche or socialist. Uh, <laughs> but there's an excellent reason to drive on the left on this side of the Atlantic, namely, that's what everyone else does. Uh, unlike the rules of traffic or uh, laws authorizing currency, though, the rules of language are tacit. They emerge as a rough consensus within a community of careful writers without explicit deliberation, agreement, or legislation. And the uh, conventions evolve. As I mentioned in the case of to finalize and to contact, they um, organically change over time. So should writers follow the rules? And the answer is it depends. Some rules just extend the logic of everyday grammar to more complicated cases. So let's take uh, Is Our Children Learning, which uh, not only George W. Bush, but the Microsoft Word Grammar Checker uh, uh, flags as an error with the uh, famous wiggly green line. Uh, is Our Children Learning is equivalent to Our Children is Learning. Everyone can see that Our Children is Learning is ungrammatical, and therefore Is Our Children Learning is also ungrammatical. Or a slightly more complicated case, the impact of the cuts have not been felt yet. Uh, why did Microsoft Word put a wiggly line under that? Well, when you think about it, uh, that sentence is the impact uh, have not been felt. If you delete the optional of the cuts, that just jumps off the page as ungrammatical. Of course, it's the impact has not been felt, and so it's the impact of the cuts has not been felt. The writer was just distracted by the plural cuts that happen to be cheek by jowl with the verb uh, have. Also, there are some rules of word choice that make important semantic distinctions. Fulsome is not a fancy-schmancy synonym for full. Uh, it, you would, fulsome means um, excessive or uh, insincere. Uh, and so one ought not to thank someone for their fulsome compliment. Uh, that is, that if someone gives you a fulsome compliment, that's a bad thing, not a good thing. Uh, likewise, you should not compliment someone's uh, elegant theory by calling it simplistic. Simplistic means uh, overly simple or childlike or, or uh, um, incorrectly simple. Uh, nor, if you think that something is meritorious, should you call it meretricious. If you don't know why, you can go home and look it up in the dictionary. 
Uh, in general, one should uh, avoid reaching for a hoity-toity word to replace a humbler synonym. Uh, if uh, you do, you might elicit the uh, reaction of Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride when another character kept referring to using the word inconceivable to refer to things that just happened. He said, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> On the other hand, not every pet peeve bit of grammatical folklore or dimly remembered lesson from Miss Thistlebottom's classroom is a legitimate rule of usage. And many supposed rules of usage turn out to violate the grammatical logic of English, turn out to be routinely flouted by the best writers, and often have always been flouted by the best writers, singular they being an excellent example. Uh, a recent article in a uh, conservative opinion magazine in the United States argued that sing singular they was a um, feminist plot that had been forced down our throats by angry, angry women's liberationists uh, in search of a gender-neutral means of expression, and that we should resist this linguistic engineering and go back to the crystalline prose of Jane Austen. Whoops. Turns out that Jane Austen used singular they 87 times in her novels, uh, as in everybody, everybody began to have their vexation. Likewise, if you got a problem with the sentence final prop a preposition, maybe you should uh, go back and edit Shakespeare when he wrote, we are such stuff as dreams are made on. And the same is true of split infinitives, dangling participles, uh, between you and I, and many other pseudo rules. In fact, not only can, uh, is obeying bogus rules unnecessary, it can often make prose worse. Here is a a uh, sentence from a communication that I got from my own employer, Harvard University, in one of its uh, boastful newsletters. David Rockefeller has pledged $100 million to increase dramatically learning opportunities for Harvard undergraduates. Now, this writer twisted himself into such a pretzel to avoid a split infinitive <laughs> that he churned out a sentence that, uh, as far as I can tell, does not belong to the English language. <laughs> in fact, Obeying bogus rules can literally lead to a crisis in governance. Literally. In 2009, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who was a uh, famous grammatical stickler, was charged with administering the oath of office to uh, Barack Obama. And the wording of the oath of office, as stipulated in the US Constitution, is, uh, would be, I, Barack Obama, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. But Chief Justice Roberts um, spotted a split verb uh, in that uh, oath. And so he had Obama say, I, Barack Obama, do solemnly swear that I will execute the office of President to the United States faithfully, which not only is not a stylistic improvement, but it called the legitimacy of the transition of power into question. And so they had to repeat the oath of office <laughs> in a private ceremony in the White House later that afternoon. So how should a careful writer distinguish legitimate rules of usage from bogus ones? Well, the answer is unbelievably simple. Look them up. If you turn to a dictionary, say Merriam-Webster's, and look up split infinitive, it will say, it's all right to split an infinitive in the interest of clarity. Since clarity is the usual reason for splitting, this advice means merely that you can split them whenever you want to. In Carta, World English Dictionary, there is no grammatical basis for rejecting split infinitives. American Heritage Dictionary, Random House Dictionary, none of the dictionaries say that there's anything wrong with a split infinitive. 
So modern dictionaries and style manuals do not ratify pet peeves, grammatical folklore, or bogus rules. And that's because they base their advice on evidence, on the practices of contemporary good writers, on the practices of the best writers in the past, on, uh, in some cases on polling data from a panel of writers in, in contested cases, on effects on clarity, and on consistency with the grammatical logic of English. Also, we should keep correct usage in perspective. Now, I do think that it is a good idea to respect the legitimate rules, but in fact, they're the least important part of good writing. They pale in significance uh, behind uh, maintaining classic style, coherent ordering of ideas, overcoming the curse of knowledge, to say nothing of factual diligence and sound argumentation. And also, uh, even when we get grumpy about some uh, undoubtedly uh, uh, grammatical error, uh, we should keep in mind that they are not signs of the decline of language. And this is uh, nicely captured in a uh, XKCD webcomic by uh, Randall Monroe in which he shows a uh, purist who is haunted by a uh, vision of things to come, by a ghost in the middle of the, of the night who says, I bring a cautionary vision of things to come. This is the future. And this is the future if you give up the fight over the word literally. <laughs> and yes, they are exactly the same. So to sum up, uh, I've suggested that modern linguistics and cognitive science provide better ways of enhancing our writing. A, model of prose communication, namely classic style in which language is a window on the world, an understanding of the way language works, namely as a way of converting a web of thoughts into a string of words, a diagnosis of why good prose is so hard to write, namely the curse of knowledge, and a way to make sense of rules of correct usage, namely tacit evolving conventions. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Um, there's a lot you want to say. Just to kick off, a lot. I'll just say one thing. Isn't it? When do you think it started this determination to keep the language? as it always had been, which had huge emotional and political and personal fury. Jonathan Swift, yes. than whom you know, no one could be, uh, was so enamored of Virgil, because Virgil had written a Latin that continued for several centuries, and so uh, alarmed that he couldn't properly understand Chaucer, that he set up a club to ascertain, to fix, the English language. He enlisted the Queen, Queen Anne on his side, enlisted Dr. Johnson, which was a mistake, because when Johnson did his dictionary, he discovered that it didn't work. <laughs> but nevertheless, he went to that sort of length just to keep it as it was. So there's an emotional component in this, isn't there? Uh, very much, yes. And I, and I think um, it, <coughs> it began in the uh, 17th century, but it really hit its stride, as you note, in the 18th century. And there's a, a wonderful book by um, uh, Henry Hitch Hitching, uh, yeah, on the, uh, the uh, history of um, prescriptivism, and another, another wonderful book by Lane Green uh, on this. And it was tied up with, I mean, it was around that time that the um, dialect of English spoken in the south of England became the standard. It was uh, literacy uh, was spreading in the 18th century. The uh, books became cheaper and more plentiful. It, uh, more and more people were, were, were uh, reading. Um, and uh, 
There was also the rise of the middle class and a certain amount of class anxiety. So the combination of the imperative to standardize and a sensitivity about whether you were from the, the right part of it, you know, from the area around London and not from the north, uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, resulted in uh, a um, kind of a market for style manuals, many of which tried to outdo each other with increasingly stringent rules of how not to uh, betray your lowly origins, how not to flout the newly emerging standards. And lectures, lecturers went around places like this and taught people, and they came in there hundreds and hundreds to Absolutely. learn how, and then in, how to pronounce their H's. For instance. <laughs> yes, the H was a big, big barrier. And then, of course, so, uh, I mean that kind of reached its uh, climax, at least in, in uh, uh, popular media, in uh, Pygmalion, yes. uh, where where Shaw had uh, great fun with uh, with Sir Henry Higgins. Okay, that's enough of that. Right, uh, for me, I mean. Now, who would like to ask a question? There you are at the front. Oh, yes, we have microphones in waiting. Thank you. If someone in one part of the world, like America, wrote something in correct English, is it possible that due to international usage that, say, someone in England or Australia would misinterpret what they've written because usage can differ in different countries? Yes, there, there are a number of examples. Um, Sometimes with comical effect, as in, uh, I mean, the, the example I think most often circulated is when uh, a uh, gentleman in England uh, says uh, uh, to a woman, uh, can I knock you up? Uh, in British English, that could refer to knocking on her hotel door to awaken her. In American English, it means to make her pregnant. Uh, and uh, there, there are many opportunities like that. There are others where I, don't, I think there's little misunderstanding, but there can be a... Uh, 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 quick kind of boggle reaction, uh, which, for example, I get whenever I hear uh, something like, the Guardian are dedicated to providing you with uh, diverse content, uh, where you've got a, a plural verb with uh, referring uh, to uh, a subject that's an organization or an entity. My bank are awful, or Microsoft are bringing out new products. To my ears, uh, that sounds like, is our children learning? but it's, it's uh, generally acceptable in, in Britain. Uh, and there are many other examples, even things like when uh, my editor says, um, I'm gonna, uh, I'll collect you at the hotel later. To me, it sounds like he's implying that I'm a bunch of smithereens that have to be kind of gathered <laughs> up and put in a basket. So in American English, you can only collect distributed entities. There, there are, uh, there's a, a long list of isolated entities like that. Um, it's more severe with, um, Idioms, figures of speech, especially ones that are, are particularly recent or au courant. Uh, so a casual, slangy, um, uh, breezy writer will be harder uh, for someone on the other side of the Atlantic or the uh, other side of the Pacific to understand, whereas more formal edited prose tends to be more, more uh, uniform. Uh, so these, these differences are inevitable. They are, are, it is interesting for all the differences between American and British English, to say nothing of uh, Australian and New Zealand, New Zealand and South African English, um, despite their centuries of, of separation, they haven't grown that far apart. Uh, and uh, they're, you know, they are almost entirely mutually comprehensible. And that must be due to the constant traffic of printed material, people and, more recently, electronic material uh, across the oceans. There's a chap there, and then there's someone over here next, if you want to go over here. Yes, you. 
As you said, there's no final authority in the English language, but that's not the case with other languages like French and German. And the Germans particularly love to go around simplifying the language and simply abolishing things that people have used for centuries or decades are quite comfortable with. Has this made the language harder for people to learn and has it made it less adaptable yeah. uh, to changes in more broader society? Yes. It's um, uh, not all of the top-down edicts are actually followed by the population, and many of them are, are just ignored, except in official publications like government documents and so on. So it's always a, a battle between the, the uh, bubbling, churning, in, grassroots innovations and the top-down uh, edicts. Um, probably, in, I don't think in the language as a whole, because I don't, just don't think authorities are powerful enough to stop the, uh, the introduction of new words. They're probably some constructions in which there is some awkwardness that's enforced by uh, using the local French uh, word instead of the English loan word uh, or um, restricting figures of speech that turn out to be useful. So I think probably at the margins here and there, but unlikely that the language as a whole can be that easily controlled. Then, uh, sorry, I, I promised this lady here next. Um, it seems as though the, um, the rate at which we're acquiring words is definitely speeding up because of digital technology. And I was wondering if you thought the same was happening with usage and grammar. Are we, are we seeing an increase in the pace at which things are changing? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think more, more than before, we can actually, someone can answer that question because we've got uh, the easily searchable and classifiable uh, text in the form of, of the internet uh, in Google Books and many other uh, ways of using um, the internet as a kind of ma as a massive corpus. I don't know if anyone has. Uh, it's harder to track grammatical constructions than words because it's easy to search for a word. It's harder to search for uh, a verb followed by a noun phrase followed by a prepositional phrase. Um, but uh, and there are some innovations. Uh, so, for example, the American Dialect Society voted as its word of the year the construction um, because X like. Um, I believe in global warming because science. Now that, to someone at least in my generation, uh, that just sounds wrong. Uh, but, uh, but you do see it, and it is, I don't know whether it'll catch on, I kind of doubt it, but it has some chance of catching on. That, of course, is not a new word, but a new uh, grammatical privilege of the word uh, because. And that does happen not as quickly as vocabulary. Uh, which comes in very, very rapidly. Grammar changes more slowly, but grammar can change, and um, the hypothesis that it, 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 it can go both ways. You can say that because there's this massive catchment area of innovators all throwing their innovations into the, the massive pool of, uh, of English, the innovations might come more quickly. On the other hand, because they disseminate more quickly and they're less likely to get kind of... Tr um, uh, entrenched in a local community and therefore become part of a local dialect, it may be that the rate of innovation is slower. And so it would be an interesting uh, project for a computational uh, corpus linguist. And I don't know the answer. This is actually a related question. Um, I think there's a sense in business English and in financial English of it being used as a much simpler language because it's a second language to most people. And I just wonder whether there's been trends of that you can analyze from the past, say when Latin was the dominant second language yeah. or French was the dominant second language that is kind of will dictate 
where the English language goes? And does, it, do, does that influence it enough to sort of state that it's going to get dumbed down because it's just being used in a simpler way? Yeah, so that, that, is, uh, that certainly did happen to uh, Latin when it became a, a kind of vernacular. Uh, and, and often local languages will be simplified when they are the languages of an empire. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it'll happen to English, even though you're, you're right that there's a, a vast proportion of the planet that speaks English as a second language. In fact, more people speak English as a second language than as a first language. Um, although an increasing proportion of people have, are trying to, to learn it at native-like uh, competence. Um, I suspect that, that because there's, be such, there's such a well-entrenched um, uh, network of edited prose of the major newspapers and broadcasters and textbook writers and so on, that uh, the language will resist being uh, leveled by the need for others to speak it, although within certain contexts like memos, uh, regulations, government web pages, simply to meet the practical needs of being understood by speakers of English as a second language. There may be uh, kind of standardized, simplified forms, uh, but I doubt that it'll drag the whole language down with it because there's still uh, hundreds of millions of English, of primary uh, first language English speakers who uh, will, will, will keep all the words alive. Just a brief uh, interjection. Might it be that the English is perhaps longevity compared with Latin, although that was long enough, and French, so that was long enough, might be that from the very beginning, starting in this country, one of the strengths, I think, of English was the dialects. Mm -hmm. So its ability to become a dialect. So you get Singlish, you get dialects. Yeah. In the Caribbean, you've got about, oh, let's say, 20 different dialects of English. And it lends itself to that. It seems to lend itself very easily and well, and that keeps it fertile. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point. In a sense, there's no such thing as English. Uh, David Crystal wrote a book called Englishes, uh, alluding to the fact that there are dialects. I mean, in, in the past, there were many more regional dialects, both in the United States and in uh, Britain, which have became homogenized with compulsory schooling and broadcast media. But now we are seeing globally um, a new um, uh, genesis of dialects in, in uh, places like Singapore and uh, India. And there are the self-conscious revival of dialects in this country. But yeah, um, I just wondered that um, whether you agree that the sort of underlying psychological state of the writer is often the reason for the way that they write, um, and that therefore perhaps um, an injunction to be confident, calm, and candid would be just as good a way of ensuring that people wrote in a way that could be easily understood by others, that they've got something to hide whether they know it or not, or want to have it or not, in fact. Do you think that might be? Yes, yeah, so I think there is, that, that having, adopting the right attitude or stance really is the first step in, in writing, uh, writing well. And it isn't so much that the writer has to be confident, uh, as uh, that the writer has to artfully fake being confident. Uh, and um, one of the reasons that bureaucratic and academic uh, prose is so flabby and flaccid is that um, there is a, a reluctance to go on the record with any confident statement, especially in academia where the, the coin of the realm is being sophisticated about how difficult it is to acquire knowledge or to, and how uncertain we always are, uh, whereas the requirements of clear writing is a kind of naive realism, namely there is an objective reality, you can see it just by opening your eyes. It's that stance that leads to clear writing, even though literally it is not 
as we know, the way knowledge is acquired. And if you're a sophisticated scholar or scientist, you don't want to pretend that you can just open your eyes and see reality. So there's a tension between the kind of fake psychology that a writer ought to adopt in order to write um, uh, artful and clear prose and the attitude that deep down uh, he or she really takes. And that's why I think you don't have to be a brash person to write vigorous prose. You've got to know how to, uh, to fake that, that brashness and that naturalness and that, that clarity. I quote uh, the uh, uh, Dolly Parton who said, um, you wouldn't believe how much it costs to look this cheap. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, so a writer has to put an awful lot of effort and artifice into writing uh, simply and clearly and confidently. Yes, that was Robert Graves said once about the, somebody was commending him on, on his history books, and they said they're very clear and uh, simple to read, and he said, <laughs> because they're very hard and difficult to write. <laughs> <laughs> so true, absolutely. Now yes. up there. I wonder, I wonder if you could give me some of your thoughts on uh, punctuation or what appears to be the decreasing use of correct punctuation, which, of course, is so complementary to the text and meaning. I mean, for example, with the split infinitive, uh, dramatically increase, it, it could actually be got round by saying increase dramatically, comma. Um, I find as well what is quite in, uh, annoying, irritating, is um, the increasingly frequency uh, that sentences have run into each other where, a full, where there should be a full stop. Um, what, what are your thoughts on how punctuation is uh, developing? Yes. So um, I uh, want you to be very uh, um, uh, careful about saying that something is some usage is declining because as those quotes that I uh, um, reproduced at the beginning of the talk show, people, have always, people always think that standards are declining. And uh, in the case of punctuation, punctuation itself was kind of a mess in um, uh, English until it got kind of standardized in the early decades of the 20th century. And uh, a lot of 19th century prose and, and 18th century prose would actually have um, uh, would be mispunctuated by the standards of today, uh, such as the um, famous Second Amendment to the American Constitution, the, uh, uh, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to uh, bear arms shall not be infringed. That has a, the framers of the American Constitution put a comma in a place where an English teacher would say you can't have a comma. And, and so did Jane Austen in the famous first sentence in, um, uh, pride and Prejudice. So, um, so it, it, I don't think it's accurate to say that standards of punctuation have gone down. If anything, they became more uh, uh, rigid in the, in the 1920s. They differ on the two sides of the Atlantic, and, um, and they also change over time, that um, there's a general trend towards lighter punctuation. That is, instead of having your page kind of fly-specked with all of these polka dots and, 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 and little, little um, uh, skittles everywhere. Uh, copy editors have been trying to pare down punctuation to the, the bare minimum. I agree with you, though, that uh, properly punctuated um, prose by the contemporary standards of punctuation, and, and they do change, uh, does certainly help in making prose flow, both because it uh, can 
reproduce the melody and rhythm of speech, which is necessarily lost on the printed page, and because it can um, demarcate uh, grammatical um, uh, junctures, grammatical um, uh, phrases. The problem with punctuation is that it's actually a pretty um, poorly designed system. And I, I have a, a, an extensive discussion of punctuation in the sense of style, showing that there are a lot of bugs in the system, cases where no one who were, would design a punctuation system now would design it the way English punctuation works. It's a bit like English spelling. There are a lot of arbitrary, infuriating um, uh, aspects to punctuation, which is why errors are so common. A lot of the people who make errors in punctuation are not being illogical, they're being too logical, and they're not recognizing how many features of punctuation are uh, arbitrary. So uh, um, the, probably the most obvious example is uh, the possessive its. So it apostrophe s, it's, uh, you know, it's home or uh, its main problem is. If you spell it with an apostrophe, you have branded yourself as uh, semi-literate. But <laughs> on the other hand, uh, when you think about it, apostrophe s is the way that the possessive, or the, more accurately the genitive, is spelled everywhere else in English. You say Bob's hat, Bob uh, apostrophe s. You say the, the, the hat's brim, apostrophe s. Why shouldn't you say its main problem, apostrophe s? Well, you just don't. Uh, someone in the mists of time just decreed that there's no apostrophe there. Uh, and one of the reasons I think that errors of punctuation uh, so stigmatize a poor writer, logical though they may be, is that what they betray is a lack of attention to the details of the printed page. People who punctuate properly have spent a lot of time immersed in text and they are paying a lot of attention to all of these bugs and irregularities and uh, maddeningly illogical features of punctuation. So if you use it correctly, you've kind of run that gantlet and proved that you've actually paid attention. Uh, if you make errors, it might be that you've just got too logical a mind, but you haven't spent a whole lot of time reading text. Uh, for all that, um, punctuation is well worth uh, mastering uh, uh, while realizing that it there's no evidence that it has gotten worse over time, nor is there evidence that, uh, that punctuation reflects a, a logical mind. There's also clear evidence that some of the great works uh, predate Ulysses, for instance, or, or the great work that followed that, where he deliberately distorts, uh, ignores, plays games with punctuation. punctuation. Oh, uh -huh. And you have pages and pages without any punctuation at all. In fact, I think Will Self's last novel was one sentence. Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, in, in, in sometimes, I mean, that, that's true of all rules of, of, of um, uh, grammar and meaning that they are sometimes deliberately flouted by a skillful writer in order to achieve some effect. Uh, so James Joyce, famously in, in the, the uh, end of Ulysses, with that... I Olivia Pluribel, yeah. Yes, and that where it's deliberately not punctuated because it's designed contrary to the goals of classic style. It's trying very hard not to be classic, that is, rather than the prose pointing to an objective reality, the whole point is to convey the nature of the stream of consciousness without all of that pointing to an ex external world or those, that linear break of one word after another demarcated by punctuation. So all the rules can be broken by, uh, even the legitimate ones, by an artful author who knows what he or she is doing. And the problem gets even deeper when you think that one man's full stop is another man's or another woman's comma. Yeah, yes. And then you're in real trouble with your editors up there. Yeah, hi. Um, I have two questions, which is, I think they're not at all related, so unfortunately I can't 
Yeah. The first point is um, uh, much of what you talked about today, including the punctuation issue, is about written written prose. And I was wondering whether you th uh, there's some how you think of that evolution because most of how we consume written prose was on paper where you have to have a beginning and an end. It's two dimensional. And then the only time I really consume content on paper these days is when I find a metro free newspaper on <laughs> on a subway or the tube. And these days it's all electronic on websites. And now you have this three dimensional aspect that you can punch in and go to words you don't understand or concepts and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And I was thinking. Perhaps in that example you talked about with the rabbit illusion, rabbit experiment, if it were hyperlinked to the original yes. research, right. those who know about it can skip it. Or even a YouTube video showing the... Whatever. Yeah. So is right. there a next evolution in terms of how language is going to evolve in a 3D nature? Yeah. Uh, that's question number one. Question number two is, um, uh, so we have an incredibly bright uh, uh, daughter with dyslexia. So struck by the fact your your description of of, of the, the the passive voice and how it's a way to organize thoughts, uh, complex thoughts into language, and and she says, well, for instance, she says, I know exactly how I want to express it. I can say it, but it gets all jumbled up when I put it down on paper. So I was wondering, maybe you could share with us uh, any new ideas from cognitive science in in dealing describing and dealing with, with dyslexia. Mm. Well, as to the first question, is it's um. There isn't one digital medium, but many, and many of them differ dramatically from each other. So uh, texting, for example, which is by design ephemeral and, and designed just to convey the minimum and the minimum amount of time, a little bit like the old telegrams is going to economize on uh, redundant words, spelling doesn't matter. Uh, on the other hand, a, uh, a blog post, uh, a uh, Wikipedia page, a Amazon product review will tend to be a bit more formal. And then if you're just reading The, the, the Guardian or The Times online, uh, or a book online from Kindle, it's not even distinguishable from uh, the, the standards of prose on, on the printed page. But you, um, in addition, you point to extra capabilities that electronic media give you, which I think will be and ought to be uh, exploited. We shouldn't be afraid of it. When you, uh, such as the, the excellent example that you gave of an obscure term being um, explicable via a hyperlink. And in fact, um, uh, text is, even conventional uh, dead tree text has always had to develop workarounds for the fact that it is two-dimensional and static. When you think about it, a, a footnote is a primitive hyperlink, and an index is a primitive search engine. Uh, the fact that we can now uh, kind of do without an index, um, not quite, but, uh, and that footnotes are, are uh, conventional footnotes ought to be completely obsolete, are just um, two of the ways in which we um, can use the resources of electronic media to en enhance uh, communication. Even the, the, the despised uh, smiley face uh, has its uses if, it's, if it weren't so stigmatized by the fact that it came from the world, world of nerds and is uh, embraced by the younger generation. But I have a wonderful style manual called, uh, just called Style by uh, the English scholar um, uh, F.L. Lucas uh, from the early 50s. Uh, uh, some of the older people here may have uh, grown up with, uh, with it. I think he was an Oxford Don. 
And um, in 1951, or whenever he wrote it, there's a wonderful passage in which he says, well, the, the printed page is just so, so limited, and what we really need is a punctuation character that indicates that the preceding sentence was meant ironically or in jest. <laughs> <laughs> so he's basically calling for the smiley face. The idea is we finish about half past eight. We've gone past that, but there are two more questions. One was a question there, and then the final question, the lady up there in the middle. If somebody can get a microphone to her. Thank you. Hi, thank you very much. I must say how much I've thoroughly enjoyed your lecture tonight. Oh, thank you very Even much. Even though most of it went over the top of my head, I still enjoyed that as well. <laughs> but it's a little story about uh, uh, what I had with the publisher recently. Um, I had a few experiences in life which uh, I wrote about and sent it to some publishers and the manuscript. They said they absolutely loved it. And they said they're going to get two top proofreaders to go through it, send it back to me, and then after that, we'll sign the contract. And I was very excited about it. And the proofreaders came back to me with a lovely comment. It was a privilege to write, read your manuscript. I thought, oh, great. That was the good news. The bad news was they had to correct the grammar, which they did. And I, I read the manuscript after it was corrected. Didn't even recognize my story at all, oh, yeah. whatsoever. They'd lost the spirit of it completely, and I was very disappointed. Mm -hmm. And it, I didn't sign the contract with them. And what I did, I hired my own editor. Proofreader. Pro <laughs> oh, yeah. I was just going to, I just thought it might be interesting for you to know that when uh, something is corrected to a certain extent, you can completely lose the spirit of it. Oh yes, that, can, that can undoubtedly can happen, and a lot of the skill in copy editing is applying the rules judiciously so as not to flatten the author's voice or uh, get rid of sometimes intentional irony or humor uh, that may, may flout the rules for uh, rhetorical effect. Yes. Final question yes, up there. Uh, thank you. Uh, just very quickly, um, are all languages equally complex? Or is it possible, uh, or is it impossible to express uh, or communicate some ideas in some language? In other words, to what extent does the language shape the c capacity of the individual to express a concept? Yes. So this is the, um, uh, the, the question you, you raise is sometimes uh, referred to as the hypothesis of linguistic uh, determinism, namely does the language you speak affect the thoughts that you can think? Uh, and I've written about that in two previous books, most uh, recently in, in The Stuff of Thought, where I have a, a chapter on linguistic determinism. Um, I, I think it doesn't, although that has to be qualified by saying that the language is, not, is itself not a, a static entity, uh, and that the, the first part of your question, namely, are all languages equally complex, is difficult to answer simply because um, there's no one thing called the English language which every speaker has mastered. All of us have different subsets of this um, uh, omnibus entity called the English language. Uh, one person may know technical vocabulary and science, another um, uh, hip idioms bubbling up from the street, a third might know a lot of uh, obscure literary words. English is the superset of all of them, and no one actually knows the entirety. And so it is with every language. Uh, and also, because the boundaries of language are elastic, 
when there's a concept that you can't express, you invent a new word for it. You borrow it from another language you know, you invent a neologism, you have a circumlocution which then gets um, uh, compressed and, and eroded over time, uh, you have an acronym, and so there's n there isn't a, a fixed enough thing called a language that could restrict your thoughts, although it may be true that, say, you can't have an argument in theoretical physics in uh, a, a native language of uh, the South American rainforest now because they don't have the vocabulary, but enough of, if enough of those spe speakers felt the need to have a debate on theoretical physics, they would over time uh, accumulate that vocabulary. So that's why it's, it's a difficult question, question to answer yes or no. The, way, the reason that I gave a skeptical answer is simply because uh, thought isn't the same thing as language. Thought is far richer than language. Even if your language does make it difficult to express a concept, you can, you, it is possible to have the concept without the language, in which case you can extend the language. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure we want to... That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode and you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks.